Kia ora everyone and thanks for joining us today. I hope you've had a great summer. We had a great time spending our first summer with our daughter Piper. Uh, we had a lot of firsts. She had her first plane ride, uh, her first strawberry, which very quickly turned into first five strawberries, although I'm not entirely sure how many actually stayed in her mouth. And of course, her first time riding a robotic vacuum cleaner. Nothing says I'm a more millennial parent than this. Uh, summer has been a good time for me and I hope it has for you too. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, doing a two-part series called Co-Papa, learning to follow the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And the idea of this is that it might refresh and reorientate ourselves on our vision of following Jesus at St. Augustine's. Part of the approach we have here is this working theory of change. Because uh, as we follow Jesus, we don't just magically become more like him, but we need to partner with the Spirit in engaging and being transformed through teaching, practice, and community. We believe that these are the contexts in which we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And so uh, for us at St. Augustine's, these three things are really core to who we are. But the last wee while, we haven't exactly been able to engage in these things the way we would like to, or at least in the way that we usually do. And I want to begin today by acknowledging my and maybe your disappointment, because uh, our original plan was that today we'd all be back together as a church at Auckland Girls Grammar, gathering again in person as one big whanau. And uh, like so many of you, I miss the normality of doing church in person with everyone, young and old. I was excited to see everyone back together, to have Piper experience St. Augustine's for the first time and to worship and pray with you all. And you know what? I'm even looking forward to dragging our gear up those miserable stairs, uh, sitting in our sauna of an auditorium again and pretending to hear a word that you people are saying in that loud hospitality area. But again, here we find ourselves connecting in less than desirable ways. But I want to be honest with you all about my faith over the last wee while. Because with these long layoffs from meeting together in our normal way on Sundays, I found it quite exposing and vulnerable for my faith. Because what I've found is when you strip away our normal meetings on Sunday mornings, our impersonal gatherings, uh, that I'm actually left with very little content to show for my faith. That the way I'm formed by teaching and practices and community usually happens uh, two hours of the week and not the other 166. I very much have a Sunday morning spirituality, and I wonder if you've kind of felt this vulnerability as well. Sometimes without the church, we run the risk of turning into functional atheists, where our faith struggles to find outworkings throughout the week, where we're running on a minimal viable spirituality, where we're just doing enough. Now, I'd very much love to ignore this uncomfortable vulnerability of having my faith exposed and just jump straight back into the comfortable rhythms of practicing my faith on Sunday mornings, uh, but what I've been feeling the Spirit calling me to, and maybe the Spirit calling you to as well, is to widen my horizon of the activity of God in my life. <clears throat> to have a fresh awareness for the activity of the Spirit in all things, and to have an expansion of my faith beyond Sunday gatherings as important as they quite obviously are. And ultimately, the question I want to ask today is this. How can someone like me, a professional Christian, a beacon of spirituality and holiness, someone doing their masters in theology, end up so easily having my faith exposed. And it's, an important, it's important that we get this question right, because as Dorothy Sayers asks, 
How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his or her life? But first, let's talk about submarines, Sweden, and farts. For 15 years, Sweden was in a diplomatic stoush with Russia, and it all started when a Russian submarine beached itself, beached itself on the shores of a Sweden uh, harbour in 1981. The Russians had all kinds of excuses as to how they stumbled into a Swedish harbour. Uh, they were lost. Conditions were really bad. They were playing Wordle and they got distracted. Anyway, somehow they convinced the Swedes to tow them into international waters and to just let them be on their merry way. Of course, this was all a bit embarrassing for the Swedish, so they promised the public that they would now be extra vigilant. So they started tracking the oceans for more submarines, and they could not believe their findings. With the use of hydrophones, or underwater listening devices, that they would drop from helicopters, they were picking up around 30 Russian submarines a year in their waters. And when they would hear these, the sound of these submarines, they would send out helicopters who would drop bombs into the ocean and they would uh, drag large metal nets to close off the harbours. The Swedish Prime Minister was livid. He sent an angry letter to the then Russian President Boris Yeltsin demanding that he stop, to which Yeltsin replied, we have no idea what you're talking about. Until one day they got a scientist in, Magnus Wahlberg, who was a professor specialising in underwater sound. And they took him to a secret James Bond-esque base at the bottom of a cliff, and they played him a recording of one of the Russian subs they had picked up. And he said this, he said, I don't know what this is, but it's definitely not a submarine. And so he went away and he did some more research, and what he found was very embarrassing for the Swedish. He found that around the coast of Sweden, there is a, a fish, a kind of herring. And this herring does a very uh, strange thing. It farts underwater. And a school of them makes a sound that could be mistaken for a submarine. In other words, the Royal Swedish Navy had for the last 15 years been chasing after and dropping bombs on farting fish. The scientists who made the discovery said the Navy didn't react particularly well to this finding. Um, some of their whole careers had been built on this idea of Russian submarines. The Royal Swedish Navy had committed themselves for 15 years to a faulty, misguided view of reality. And so often, we as Christians do the same thing. We commit ourselves to a faulty and misguided view of reality through our habitual tendency to split up our lives into Christian and non-Christian activities, to see some things as sacred and other things as secular. In theology, this is called the problem of the sacred-secular divide. John Mark Comer defines it this way. He says, the sacred-secular divide is the idea that some things are sacred or spiritual and they matter to God, but other things are secular or physical and at least by implication, they don't matter to God or at least not all that much. The problem with this widespread way of thinking is that by this definition, most of life is secular. We see this dichotomy play out in the way we view our, our personal activities and practices. On the one side is the spiritual sacred stuff, which is seen as really the only stuff that matters in life. Things like church, worship, prayer, evangelism, Bible study. This is seen as the stuff that God really cares about. And this is the stuff we do on Sunday. And then there is a secular, non-spiritual stuff, which is seen as lowly and of less importance to God. Things like education, work, play, arts, entertainment, government, science. 
And the sacred secular divide, these things are not of God and pursuit of these things does nothing for our spiritual lives. Of course, we often do this subconsciously. We don't seek to exclude God from our lives, but we live in a time where the absence of God's presence is the default view in the world. In Christian history, this divide is a relatively new problem that has its roots in the Reformation and had an ideological height in the Enlightenment, especially with the work of the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who proposed the separation between the realms of the phenomenal and the noumenal. In Kant's view, the phenomenal is the public world of empirical fact, that, that which can be proven with reason alone. By con contrast, the noumenal world deals with morality and spirituality, things which cannot be rationally or empirically proven. All beliefs in this realm must be accepted by faith, therefore we cannot know these things for certain. Noumenal beliefs should be kept private and outside the public domain. So there are two major problems with this concept of the sacred and secular divide. Firstly, it inaccurately describes God's activity in the world. It's essentially a demotion of God's presence in his creation. Or we could even describe it as a spatial atheism where uh, some spaces in our world where we perceive God as simply just not existing. As Dallas Willard has observed, the idea of something that runs without or independent of God is theologically absurd for the Christian. It flies in the face of what the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins writes, that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Or consider another poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who writes, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. Paul, preaching in Athens, himself quotes poetry to speak of the saturation of the sacred of this world. And he speaks of the God in, in whom we live and move and have our being. And uh, Paul here is appropriating the ancient poetry of uh, Epimenides, who originally used this phrase to speak of Zeus. Paul uses the Athenian understanding of Zeus to emphasize how the resurrected Christ is present and active in our lives, except this God, as Paul emphasizes, doesn't dwell in temples, but is the God who created the world and is present to it. God's presence fills his creation, and it's only to our own peril that we fail to recognize this reality. To make another unnecessary reference to submarines, our pastor and theologian Greg Boyd puts it this way, his loving presence presses in on you like the water pressure on a submarine three miles beneath the ocean. Right now, simply become aware of this truth. Let the reality of God's loving presence be a canvas against which you experience and interpret the world around you. May we be people who are aware of the sacred presence of God, that right now envelops us and seeks our awareness. Secondly, the sacred secular divide inaccurately describes our role in the world. In the Old Testament, priests were those who mediated God, God's presence and facilitated sacred experiences. But in the New Testament, we see a shift. The temple veil is torn and we see the unleashing of God's presence on the world. We also see that people who believe in and follow the way of Jesus all become priests themselves, that the practices of God's presence are accessible to everyone. All followers of Jesus become part of this priesthood. Consider the words from our scripture reading today, where we become both temple and priest. Let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The theologian Charles Spurgeon, in light of this scriptural reality and the frustration of the sacred secular dichotomy, brilliantly puts it in this way, exclusive gender and inclusive language. To a man who lives unto God, Nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garments and it's a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal and it's a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life is sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say this is sacred and this is secular is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. You housemaids, you cooks, you nurses, you plowmen, you housewives, you traders, you sailors, your labor is holy if you serve the Lord Christ in it by living unto him as you ought to live. The sacred has absorbed the secular. Come on, it's good, right? And I wonder if you will join with me this year in seeking the expansion of your faith through practicing the way of Jesus and his teachings and practices, not just on Sundays, but in the sacred every day. I wonder if you'll uh, join me in not only creating space in, in my week to do things like prayer and hearing scripture and engaging in community, but also having our so-called secular parts of life be absorbed by God's sacred presence doing all we can for the glory of God. Maybe then our lives would start to look a wee bit more like this, that our engagement with our teaching and practices of God might leak out into all areas of our life. Of course, we do this all together in community, not as individuals, and Newt's going to be sharing more on this next week. I'm sure for a lot of you, this stuff isn't particularly new, um, but I do think it's an important reminder for us in this particular moment for us to reflect on the impact this season that we've just been through might have had on our faith. And my prayer is that we'll begin this year with a new level of awareness to see the Spirit move in our lives. May we seek the Spirit's perspective and power in everything that we do, and maybe, may we create space throughout our weeks to practice the way of Jesus for the good of others. Let's pray together. God, the past is gone. The future is not yet. Um, the only thing that's real is this present moment. And the most important thing in this present moment is that your spirit is here with us. And God, uh, my prayer for myself and, and this community I'm a part of is that we'll be increasingly aware of your spirit and all that we'll do, that our lives will be transformed um, by this awareness and guidance of your power. God, may we continually be uh, practicing your way, um, leaning into your scripture, absorbing the story which we live by and practicing the things that you taught us to do. Pray this all in your name. Amen.